Welcome to Thinking Like a Lawyer, with your hosts, Ellie Mistal and Joe Patrice, talking about legal news and pop culture, all while thinking like a lawyer, here on Legal Talk Network. Hello. Welcome to another edition of Thinking Like a Lawyer. I'm Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm joined by my co-editor, Catherine Rubino, who is here, and uh, we are ready to run down as per, not I would say usual, but we've been playing around with formats a lot lately. Sure, uh, so sure. I, uh, w- so as per usual, if you listen to the show <laughs> a few months ago and then stopped our rundown of the news of the week, basically uh, big legal stories, both ones that we've covered in Above the Law and elsewhere in a very ESPN style format. Uh, we're just going to sure. go non-copyrighted styles. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, well, yeah, the, the discussion, discussion, a timed discussion. Table. You won't be able to see the like. So rundown clock next to us, but the that's question what we're is do. whether or not there are sound effects, really. Well, you know, that's one of those things that uh, we were just actually a little delayed in our recording because we were having some technical difficulties getting it not set up, fun. and one of the one of the unfortunate you know casualties of this new sound system is that I no longer have access to my fun soundboard so that we can be as morning zoo style as we could. So we're not just get like one of those handheld, just buzzers like, eh. or maybe like, do we, do you have like the game taboo? Like, <laughs> oh, yeah, but I think, I think, I think I do. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but it, it's not even that, like I really always wanted to be able to play with many more of them. Uh, very like hack DJ style where it's like honk honk or whatever. Yeah. I, I just wanted to be clear. You use the word hack, not me. Yeah, I, well, I didn't. I mean, I'm doing it ironically. Sure. I lived in Brooklyn. <laughs> I understand how to do things ironically. Is that how that works? I yeah. I was pretty sure it wasn't. Whatever, Staten Island. Listen. It was uh, in Portland, I think that. Uh... So what are we, uh, we should get going because, we, you know, we're, we sure. got a jam-packed show. So what are we talking about first? Oh, I remember. They're... I'm glad that you you <laughs> prepare for this show as much as I expect. I mean, listen, I did I did my research and then I I didn't bring any notes with me to the recording because, you know, I like to uh, like to free ball it, see what happens, you know, be able to s- turn on a dime and not be bound to my notes. I mean, I, I, I sound like I'm complaining, but I mean, our, our, <laughs> our good friend Ellie never even did that. So this is this is still listen, more preparation. Okay, so, OK, story number one, ain't no party like a covid party because a covid party don't stop. Covid parties. Oh, are these things happening? Happening? Well, you know, okay, it's not a, the sort of situation where law school students are trying to catch the disease, but it is the situation that at Notre Dame, they're having in-person classes, or at least in some form, and so folks are on campus, and a 1L at Notre Dame decided that she really wanted to meet new folks and, and see who meet her classmates and whatnot, you know, which is yeah. reasonable in, in non-pandemic times. But, you know, there is, in fact, a pandemic. And she put a message on the incoming class is uh, Facebook page and said, you know, do whatever you're comfortable with, but we won't be wearing masks. Uh, that's true. Now, she later did correct herself and say that what she meant by that was that people will have them off while drinking. So, like, sure, it won't, you know, it won't be con- it won't be constant masks, and that's what she was trying to convey, but this was not taken well by the administration? No, it was not. Um, Dean sent around a email 
encouraging folks not to host parties during a pandemic, which again, seems eminently reasonable to me. Explaining that, you know, this is not what they had in mind, that there are, you know, real risks that they might have to shut down all in-person stuff if there is an outbreak. And so reminding them that if contact tracing determines that your party was the cause <laughs> of um, a massive outbreak, that that is not a good thing for the future of your reputation and your career. And you're about to start a new profession and be careful. Obviously, I think that hosting parties at this point is probably ill-advised. And I think that it is is always important to tell students to begin considering themselves professionals and to begin acting professional. But at the same time, part of that transition to being professional is not being scolded like a child. And so I was I, I just, not that I, I think the dean is absolutely right in the message being conveyed here, but invoking your reputation, I, I, your reputation will not be enhanced is the exact term in there. Sure. I just feel like these, and we're seeing it a lot with bar exam situations too, where people mm-hmm. are making these veiled or explicit threats to character and fitness, reputation, whatever. I just, I worry that that's, that's unacceptable uh, as as part of the growth of students, uh, they, they should be professional, but it, but like they can't really be. I don't know. It, I mean, it rubbed me a little bit the wrong I way. I think that you're you're looking at this from the lens of I think our conversation last week about threatening character and fitness, yeah, and not in not sort of in an isolation because the truth of the matter is. The, you say, oh, these people should not be scolded like children. Well, they shouldn't act like selfish children either, right? And hosting, wanting to host a BYOB party for your 1L classmates is not super, it's not, it's not a great idea. It's a terrible idea. And if it takes a, an adult, or I mean, they're all adults in this situation, but if it takes somebody in a position of authority reminding you that this is a terrible idea, which by the way, for the record, it was in fact called off and the student involved is working with the administration to come up with some more socially distanced slash, you know, online ways to meet her classmates, which is obviously appropriate. But I mean, they acted inappropriately by trying to host this party. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And then look, that that's really my issue. I think that the email that is don't host this party, it could screw up the entire campus. It is unsafe. You shouldn't do it because it's not safe. All of these statements totally make sense. Mm Mm-hmm. I feel like when people invoke this will hurt your professional reputation, like that's the trigger line for me where it ceases to be, hey, I'm telling you this is a bad idea, don't do it, and becomes something that is more, I I don't know, more like a scolding. uh, uh, I mean, I I guess it's all scolding, but more, um, I just think that's such a part of somebody's professional livelihood and stuff like that, that you, that it's just an inappropriate thing to I mean, go to. I mean, I, I, I disagree with you. I think a couple of things, first of all, I think that the, the Dean is not saying that I'm going to write a recommendation to character and fitness that right. you're not, which be, that would obviously be that, worse. That, that, right. This is saying that this, you have to be aware that, that this is your reputation on the line. And the truth is character and fitness boards have held smaller infractions or, or, or lapses in judgment as 
problematic. You know, it could be something like a speeding ticket could come back, you know, to, to bother you. It could be using marijuana or something that I would consider far less dangerous than hosting an, a, a party during a pandemic has come back to, to kind of haunt the character and fitness of various candidates across the country. It is something that is absolutely appropriate to talk about and to remind students of. And the truth is, who knows what what the threshold is and what the line is that, that convinced folks not to have this party. Maybe it was being like, oh gosh, this is the rest of my life. This is more important than that. And, you know, I, I feel like we're literally in the middle of a pandemic. That is okay. That is appropriate. I, I completely agree with canceling. And I think that all of the good reasons for doing it are things that need to be conveyed. I just... I feel like it's uh, it's it's pulling uh, also, I mean, magic words that are a little too see, much. I, see, I think that again, I really think that your your irritation at this is much more about what the NCBE did. You know that we talked about last time about uh, threatening character and fitness. Certainly, for, yeah. Because it, for for a quick reminder, the NCBE threatens character and fitness for students who complained about taking an exam during a pandemic. And I think that in both of those instances, looking to see who has the best public health policy winds up on either different sides, right? In the NCBE example, right, it's the students who are complaining about having to take a bar exam in person in potential super spreader conditions, right? And in the and in the Notre Dame situation, right, it's the dean who's saying, like, don't hold these parties. And I think that in both of them, the difference between why one, you know, veiled threat and one, you know, just reminder or whatever the, the, those are, I think the difference is there is that who is on the right side of public health? As we've talked about, you know, during the pandemic, like, what happens during, you know, in terms of public health is absolutely a factor in determining what actions are appropriate. And I think that the distinction there is what causes me to have a different opinion uh, of, of those two those two situations. Yeah. Public yeah, health no. has to be our number one priority. It's uh, not. That I agree with. But you know who else is having a problem with public health? The uh, president of Notre Dame, who had to issue a statement uh, the other day <laughs> explaining that he's been stopping and taking photos and like jumping in and hugging people. Yeah, uh, yeah and, he takes some, some some photos where no one was wearing a mask. Yeah. And so now great. he's he's had to apologize. Listen, that's the whole that's the whole point. Right. And I think that puts the position that, you know, the, the law school dean in more of a precarious position being like, oh, yeah. And the president, not not great at this, but but we have to really remember. So if it takes threatening or reminding folks of their professional responsibilities, you know, so be it. Mm. Uh, it. It's just something that that worries me. You know what else worries me? Contract deadlines. Contract Tools by Paper Software is the most powerful, versatile, and full-featured Microsoft Word add-in for contracts. For less than a dollar a day, Contract Tools can help you navigate complex legalese, fix common contract drafting problems, and much more. See for yourself with a seven-day free trial. Go to papersoftware.com forward slash trial and get started today. I know this is not something that we planned to talk about, but it kind of builds off of our question about what's the right thing to do in terms of public health. I'm glad uh, that we did all that time planning then. Go on. I mean, yeah. I can stop. No, no, go okay. for it. There's a judge in Philadelphia who mm. refuses to wear a mask door in his courtroom, at least reportedly. And there's a letter, a complaint that was filed to the administration of the family court as a family court judge because he refuses to do that. In addition, has ordered lawyers who have at various points appeared before him to remove their own masks. There have been in instances in, the, in this courtroom where witnesses have refused to testify because they won't be in a closed room with somebody not wearing a mask. And I mean, 
this is the kind of thing that just drives me absolutely batty. Like there's no reason for there, anyone to not be wearing a mask, particularly if you're in a closed courtroom. I mean, question whether or not in person is even fully necessary at this point. But even assuming that, you know, there is some value to in-person court hearings, certainly wearing a mask doesn't seem difficult. We know for a fact that wearing, when you're indoors in particular, but wearing a mask is your best defense. Why Why are we not doing these things? Well, at, le- at least this is a situation where he's not wearing it, as opposed to telling everybody that they can't, like the sheriff in Florida who has banned anyone from wearing masks in the Sure, that's worse. Facilities. Okay. <laughs> that is worse. But again, he's, he's telling lawyers who are appearing for, before him. That they I mean, lawyers to go to jails to that's visit true. people. That's true. Um, that's true. It, it's kind of a thing. I just don't understand. Like, I can't believe, and I know that this has been a big part of this year is this sort of battle over masks, but it continues to be infuriating. It continues to, and, and the legal profession is far from immune from dealing with this kind of idiocy. Yeah. Sorry, I just had to get it off my chest. It's really irritating. No, I agree. What do we want to, uh, given that, what do we want to discuss next? Uh, There's another ranking out. Uh, Are you excited about ranking law firms? I know we are. That is not something that we're actually super excited about, but we're going to talk about them anyway. Well, here's the thing. Listen, I participate in ranking mania as much as probably anyone else. You know, I do a daily feature trivia question of the day, um, legal trivia question of the day that is built around plenty of various, I milk those rankings for all of the data points that they provide. I think I'm a, a bit of a mixed bag when it comes to rankings. What's your take on them? Um, no, I, I, I think rankings have some, some value. I think that there are situations like uh, our above the law, law school rankings that are sure. super valuable. <laughs> um, I, I just feel like any one field probably needs one set of rankings and, or one methodology and not a million. I mean, I'm not sure that that's true, right? Like, I think part of the issue, the reason why there is an above the law law school ranking is because the dominant law school ranking, U.S. News and Report, we believe is fundamentally flawed because right. it cares more about the but I But I view that outputs. as both of us having one ranking. Like, they have a ranking and we have a ranking. It, this is a situation where ah. uh, the ALM family of publications have a million and one different rankings like so there's the amlaw 200 you know that one what about the a list of firms that's also them doing a different thing uh this time it's revenue per lawyer and pro bono and And associate satisfaction and some diversity and then they kind of double weight the pro bono part and then oh and the revenue per lawyer part and whatever and so it turns out that different firms are on top sure a little bit. I feel like at some point this just becomes ranking for ranking's sake. Sure. But I mean, I do think that having a place to put things like attorney, like associate satisfaction and making that a part of a rankings, probably there is a value to that, you know, and, and I think it's interesting. And there is, it's also interesting in terms of lateral and law students who are contemplating what law firms to go to. You know, when you're in law school and you're trying to put together your ranking of, of various firms that you want to interview with and, and potentially work out as you know a 2l summer you, there's there's a lot of information you know there's there's a lot coming at you and being able to actually have hard numbers that say people seem happy here not just oh I had an a good interview with a person that I really liked and then oh those seem like my kind of people and then you get there and you and the person's gone by the time <laughs> you know and I mean I think that like having these sorts of hard numbers really only increases the transparency overall as the profession I think that that's something I definitely believe very strongly in that sort of the more 
information we have, the better, particularly for those law students and laterals. Well, two things. One, I'm not saying that it's not good to have a list uh, a, a list of here's survey results of attorney satisfaction, here's survey list results of pro bono commitment. Mm-hmm. But creating a methodology that like weighs one over another in some way to create some weird overall, this is the A list, uh, seems suspect to me. I'd also challenge the argument that what matters is not that you had a meeting with somebody that you liked. Ultimately, law is at, at this level, at the big law level, is all soul crushing in its own way. Yes. And I yes. feel as though if you spend a lot of time saying, oh, this firm has exactly the pro bono commitments I want, you're going to find out real quick that you don't really interact with all those sorts of things. You're going to end up doing hours and hours of the same kind of work. And so what really matters is, do you feel that the people you're working with are folks you like and that are good mentors? I think that there's definitely that and definitely the ability to connect with the folks that you're working with has the ability to make an absolutely miserable, soul-crushing big law experience into a slightly less awful big law experience. And that is important. The the differences between those two, I think, are are monumental. But, But I'm not sure that interviewing is what gets you there or, or let, let you know whether or not those people will be there, right? I think that, you know, oftentimes, even if you are interviewing with an associate, oftentimes that person may not even be there or maybe in a different group than, than you wind up working for. And those aren't the people you're bonding with anyway. Yeah. So we will just say congratulations to Munger Tolls, which is apparently the, I mean, the A plus that, of the A list. They're number that. one. There's that. And, you know, that's fine. If I had my sound effect meter, I would have gone through the whole top 10 and done it like uh, like Letterman style, although, you know, a non-copyrightable version of that. Sure. Um, <laughs> not a trademarkable version, I guess I should say. Um, anywho. Who was the IP lawyer? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Anyway, you wanted to discuss some court issues in this bit of time we have? Uh, Yeah, it seems like the Supreme Court, there's been a couple of articles written recently about the increase of a so-called shadow docket uh, in the Supreme Court that because there's a five-judge majority that a lot of cases are being being dealt with without actually having, you know, full hearings or any any of that. And uh, it seems like there's just going to be even more of that in the future, regardless of kind of who wins the next presidential election. Yeah. So we all kind of gear up for the end, uh, you know, the end of the term that usually comes in June and this year, more more like July. And we gear up for that. And that's where the last big cases get decided. Or you, so you think the last high profile cases that have been argued on the merits docket get handled there, but there are still matters in front of the court that can get dealt with mm-hmm. on the DL sort of. And these <laughs> These have been called the shadow docket by a law professor, and I think it's a fair argument. And these include things like stays uh, that can have real impact. Uh, You can, Mm -hmm. for instance, have a situation where one state says, oh, and this is a very COVID-related example. One state says, you know, we don't normally allow early voting, but given that everyone could die, we've decided to allow early voting and somebody sues and it goes up the courts and the Supreme Court, without hearing any argument and limited attorney input at all, can just issue a one sentence ruling saying, we've decided we're not going to touch this right now. So it stays as it is until after the election and when we get to it, which as a functional matter, kills the argument. So it has real impacts. Today, for the first time, there was some good 
a, a good turn. Rhode Island wants to make a change that allows people to vote by absentee without requiring two witnesses and a notary. And that survived. That will be allowed to go into effect, which is good. That said, it was still a 6-3 decision. Three justices went ahead and said that, no, we don't understand why we would let people vote by absentee without a notary. Yeah. And and the truth is a lot of these COVID-based stuff is being dealt with on this docket where there is no argument, there are no, there's no decision, and it's just a straight up and down vote. And this one, that that Rhode Island case is actually somewhat unique in the sense that the restriction, you know, was kind of overturned there, the, the more restrictive. What this, and this plays into the argument that uh, there's these people who pretend that Justice Roberts is uh, some sort of a swing vote and he's not. But what the Chief Justice does is will occasionally make institutional decisions to make the court look less political because he has an institutional interest in doing that. And that's why when people think about the Supreme Court, they think of these 5-4 cases, but those are really somewhat the minority cases. There are a lot more cases are your 9-0, obviously this is true sort of situation. On that note, I'm willing to say, so this term, there were 12 decisions in the main merits term that we all know that were 5-4. So just 12. From what I can see, 11 so far since since the since the court basically stopped doing merits things there's yeah. been 11 of these shadow docket things that have been 5-4 this is where they're this is the burial ground where they're dumping all the, the actually controversial actually stuff. controversial stuff so that nobody pays attention to it which is very problematic. I mean, and, you know, the Supreme Court, there was recently um, a Gallup poll that said that the Supreme Court is the most popular it's been since Kagan was put on the court. So mm-hmm. in a real long time, I think that something like 53, 50, 58 maybe percent of people have a good opinion of the Supreme Court right now. But that's part of the reason why, right, is because Roberts is playing a canny game that allows the court to, you know, and, and part, part of that Gallup poll, some of the follow-up questioning revealed that it was that kind of everyone could point to a victory. Well, we got this case. You got that case. Okay, so if no one's really happy, everyone thinks that the court's doing what they're supposed to be doing, which, I mean, is problematic for lots of other reasons. But you're right that this sort of a shadow docket is allowing the court to play a game with public opinion. I believe, and there's a great Steve Laddick article about this. There's, uh, I believe, if I'm recalling that article correctly, there's something like that this the Trump administration has had more of these kind of decisions than the Bush and Obama administrations added together. I mean, it's that kind of a yeah. it's that kind of insanity that in four years we've had and, what took sixteen. And the fact that you know we're just kind of getting to the to the point where we're talking about this after four years is you know so it's, it's a lot. Speaking of merits decisions, one of the big merits decisions at the end of the term was June Medical, which was a mm-hmm. abortion rights decision in which the chief justice sided with the majority. Uh, this was one of those cases that said people providing abortions have to have hospital admitting privileges, which hospitals don't give those to abortion providers because why would they? Because they don't need to. And hence, they, it's a de facto way to ban abortion by by putting this requirement on them. So it was a 5-4 decision, but the chief justice's opinion, and so in the, the right. original decision was a 5-4 with Justice Kennedy on top right. and the chief right. on bottom. And this time around, the right. chief joined the top, but wrote separately and said, mm-hmm. I'm just doing this because the last case was, it's the same as last case. And so 
I'm not changing it, but I still disagree with it. Right. So what's going on with that? So the Eighth Circuit saw that decision and has reread the court's concurrence, the Justice uh, Roberts' concurrence as the controlling majority since he was the fifth vote and said that that is, is what they have to look at all future abortion regulations under, which functionally takes our standard back to under Casey, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which was that they didn't have to... So the the difference was that whether or not there had to be any benefit to the maternal health uh, in order for an abortion regulation to continue. And in this case, the Eighth Circuit said, well, that standard no longer exists in the majority. So we are going to uphold. So they actually overturned the district court who had issued a stay against the implementation of a bunch of regulations, including both partners had to consent to the disposition of the mm-hmm. uh, remains, including in case, cases of rape and incest. Yeah. If uh, if the one partner was an was a, an adult and the other person wasn't, then the adult was the only the one who was like legally an adult is the only one who had any ability to decide what how the remains of the fetus were dealt with. And what that and that doesn't sound like a thing, but it is when you realize that means it gets rid of all medical abortions, right? Mm-hmm. Because medical abortions are something that happens at home. You take a pill you go home and, you know, it happens in your house. And so the provider, the medical provider does not have any ability to say what happened to those uh, fetal remains. So unless both partners are in agreement, it means that you cannot have a medical abortion. Mm. Right. And so that was just one of their four different restrictions that were part of uh, this thing. And they're going they're about to go into effect. The charitable read of the Eighth Circuit, which I mean, this is a this is a panel that had Judge Stephen Grass on it, who was famously one of the multiple Trump appointees who was rated not qual- absolutely not qualified by the ABA, but still got his job. So this unqualified judge brings us this decision. But the charitable read is that in whole woman, woman's health, there was a 5-4 majority that said X. In this case, there's a 5-4 majority, but since since the chief only joined to to a certain extent, and he wrote this concurrence, that that means that the only thing that everyone agreed on was this concurrence, and that the what the other four are saying, since he didn't fully agree, doesn't get the full vote. That's the argument. The problem with this is his concurrence isn't really setting forth new law. His concurrence is, I agree with the part where the for other four said, this is the same as, as whole women's health. Right which means that's the precedent that like should, be get should extended, control. Right? It should not be reverted back to it's like you don't, Parenthood v. Casey. You don't get to say, I agree with the precedent, but I wish the precedent wasn't there, and then say, oh, well, one person says he wishes that wasn't precedent, so it changes. Like the, To the mm-hmm. extent, the, the most limited, if the argument is that you're supposed to go, and this is the argument they're making, that you, that the, to interpret split decisions where there's a plurality like that, you have to go with the, narrowest issue that all the of the five agree on then the thing that all the five agreed on was this was decided in whole woman's health yes so it's it was uh really really it's a really problematic decision and sort of undermines the whole gallup poll that says that you know courts are held in the best esteem that they have in years and i mean maybe they are because people aren't understanding really what's going on but it seems to me pretty clear that there is a a real problem with the credibility of the federal judiciary that's only going to get worse as we get more and more decisions from these ABA unranked, unqualified federal judges. And we're coming quickly to the end, but I will note that if 
if you thought that that was an issue today, uh, or yesterday, actually, as we're recording this, a new nominee was put up for a district courtship who has been out of law school for eight years. That doesn't seem like a lot of time. And she didn't practice all those. For four of those years, she's been clerking. Including? Including she was Thomas's clerk the term before this. That seems so fundamentally gut check wrong that yeah. I, it's, it's it, it, it goes, I refuse to no longer be shocked. I'm going to continue to be. refuse to no longer. longer right. So you right. agree to always be shocked. Okay. Not yeah, always that, be shocked, but I'm going to continue to be shocked, even though, you know, theoretically that you see so many shocking things, you kind of get numb to it, whatever. Mm. I'm going to continue to be shocked as much as I can, because these things shouldn't go by without a, a shock and outrage. This uh, this woman, her name's Mazelle. Mazelle. Mazelle, not spelled this way, but I, I have dubbed her the not-so-magnificent Mrs. Mazel. She Marvelous, does yeah. not have a long track record for anyone to go on. Uh, I'm not sure what the Senate Judiciary Committee would even look at, other than maybe her torts exam, one a <laughs> year. Uh, I think that's the most recent thing you can point to. And frankly, the reason why you know you get a bunch of clerkship is your 1L grade, so perhaps yeah, so more, maybe, more, hey, more relevant. The one shining light on this is it does uh, Professor... Carl Tobias of Richmond Law, who's an expert on judicial nominations, told me that given the backlog right now of judicial nominees, he says he is skeptical that okay. the Senate would even be able to get to her nomination before the election, before the election's over, at least, and before Inauguration Day, at worst. So he thinks it may not be uh, in the cards, well, that, but we'll that see. that certainly assumes a Democratic victory, which I would right. like to. Right, But Well, uh, well in either place. <laughs> well, e- the, US, the Postal Service is about to go in, under. So in in either place, though, uh, a Democratic victory either at the White House or in the Senate, because obviously sure. the Senate would... Sure would scuttle this as well. And part of me feels bad about, uh, I feel bad for her because she's now uh, yeah, like going 10, to get fi- this In 10, 15 years, she very well might have been qualified. Yeah, but she's not now, so she's going to get stuck with this tag. And I just think that's somewhat unfair. Anyway, here we are. And with all of that, we'd like to thank you all for listening. And you should be subscribed and giving us reviews and stars and write something so that it helps people know that we're out here. We'd like to thank uh, Paper Software for sponsoring the episode with Contract Tools. Check that out. You should be reading Above the Law daily as as I'm sure you all do. I'm at Joseph Patrice on Twitter. She is at Catherine One, the numeral one. That's the Arabic numeral one. Are you tracking that again? Yeah. It it's like every, every couple years. of years, yeah. somebody does the poll, should we teach Arabic numerals? And uh, everyone says no. no. Yeah. Anyway, uh, you should be listening to other shows. We have the ATL COVID cast, our uh, special report series on COVID and the impact on the legal profession. The Jabot, which is Catherine's show about diversity in big law firms. You should check out the other shows of Legal Talk Network. If you want, you if you have a hankering for some legal tech conversation, you can jump in on the Legal Tech Weekly Roundup that Bob Ambrosi hosts that I'm a panelist on. And I think that's all the various places where you can uh, catch up with us, That at least right now. So with that, we'll Bye. sign off. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. You can also find us at AboveTheLaw.com, ATLRedline.com, iTunes, RSS, Twitter, and Facebook. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own 
and do not represent the views of nor are they endorsed by Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.